Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Proto fish people. Yeah, the pr- proto fish people. Yeah. Hello, our valued listeners. Welcome back to another fun-filled, action-packed episode of Conspiranormal with me, your co-host, Luke. And your host, Adam. Alright, and we're back. It's been uh, it's been like a month. Yeah. Kind of took a little break from Conspiranormal for a little while, All right. just to uh, kind of rest up a little bit and... Uh, some momentous changes in your life. <laughs> got yourself a got yourself a job. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> well, I've had a job this whole time, <laughs> dude. Well, that's true. But, but uh, you got yourself like what one would consider like a real job. A, a well, a better job. You know? Yeah. But it's the most money I've ever made in my life. But it's really not like an extremely large amount. But your plan is to still live in your car. Yeah, I'm gonna right? stay. I'm gonna stay in my car, and I'm gonna use all that income to buy boats and four wheelers, and <laughs> you could have a whole fleet you could sleep in. Awesome stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know what? What? What better way to save money? I don't really need a house. Yeah. It's convenient. Yeah, but. Well, our last episode was with Adam Ellen Boss, and uh, I know you probably have a little bit of things you, if you can remember that far back, like stuff that. that you know, you really enjoyed that interview. You were talking about it for days. Yeah. As if you got any kind of like uh, insight into that. Yeah. Um, you know, so obviously it'd be a little hard for me to get a hold of some ayahuasca. So I started doing a little sure. meditating and all that. And, uh, you know, because Adam was talking about how he had faced his demons and stuff, just like all the other ayahuasca users. And I was like, you know, I, I wonder if I could 
get to the bottom of, of what's uh, holding me back in life, you know, and, yeah. and uh, look at the en- entities responsible. And I did, you know, and I and I see them, and I see it for what it's worth now. And um, good news is, is I I slowed down on the drinking. I only I only drink like once a week now. And, well, that's and good. Still, still a sex addict, but <laughs> that's that's not going to change anytime soon. Yeah, probably not. Well, uh, I had heard some interesting things uh, last uh, week, you know, four weeks or so that we've been gone. One of the interesting things is that two of the FBI agents that uh, um, were helping to arrest the uh, Zokar Zarnayev, that's a brother that was arrested for mm-hmm. the Boston bombing in the Boston Marathon, two of those FBI agents have died in a uh, training exercise. Oh, yeah. So, I don't know. But that was possibly real interesting. Yeah. Uh, at first, I was kind of thinking maybe those were the guys because of my theory about that it was the, the FBI that that uh, was probably going to set it was helping to set it up, and then we're going to sweep in at the last minute and save everybody. And uh, somehow that got screwed up. And uh, one of the things that happened was I've just felt like that that was probably you're probably going to see somebody resign or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so when I first heard that news, I thought possibly that you know those were the guys that possibly screwed it up yeah. and that they were dead. Well, but, it's, a, it's a lot easier to just kill someone that knows something rather yeah, than... Yeah, possibly. But a lot of other news sources were saying that, that it was, uh, you know, there was just somebody that, that helped to arrest those two guys and then... Uh, but it could just have been a coincidence. I don't know. Yeah. It's still pretty weird, though. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a highly... Uh, it's, it's just a strange coincidence. Right. That doesn't... That's like that's the same deal with, you know, the SEAL Team 6 getting shot down in the mm-hmm. helicopter like a week later. Most of the people that were in the Bin Laden raid that got shit, that got shot down like uh, <laughs> two, three weeks later. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think it's more like a month. And, and, and it's, it's a, it was a lot less televised, you know? It's just like a yep. little side story. Yep. Uh... One of the things I wanted to talk about before we go to our guests, and this is kind of just real quick, uh, this is kind of like a work thing for me, but uh, I kind of thought it fit in a little bit with the show. Uh, At my job, and Luke's former job, we make, uh, you know, screens, like big digital picture frames. So we use um, sources like televisions and such, LED, LCD televisions. And... We were ordering from a large chain store that I will remain nameless, and uh, they had uh, we had purchased three, and then the same day went and purchased one more. Because of that, because we purchased four in a day, they canceled the order on us. They restricted what we could buy and what we couldn't. That's not exactly the. Uh, the free market, I would say, right? Well, I mean, it's that, more like something like uh, that could just be a quantity issue, though. With them, I mean, no, know. it wasn't a quantity issue. It wasn't that they didn't have it. It's that they, which is what we thought at first, it was because they, they had plenty of it. They had plenty of this particular model. Yeah, but it was because we were just restricted because we had ordered too many in one day. What what would possibly how would that possibly be any threat to any kind of agency whatsoever though? I, right, that's what I don't understand. Well, as far as you saying like what what I'm saying about it, yeah. Well, I'm just saying that it's not exactly 
it's not exactly like we talk about you know in this country about the free market and all that kind of jazz and you just see that these companies just pretty much control and do whatever they want yeah it's true I you mean know? yeah uh, it's not exactly uh, you know people people are out there that are naive and say oh we got the free market and all that stuff and it's not true yeah you know it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of like East Germany you know you're restricting what you can buy right and then they put a flag on the credit card and then we tried to order some more thinking it was all solved and then they guess what they canceled the orders again <laughs> And told us, well, since you're a reseller, uh, you've been flagged as a reseller. Which, you know, if anybody's in business, you know, you're a reseller, you're, you know, you're buying something to resell. Yeah. And they told me today that you cannot, uh, that you cannot resell because their warrant, they wouldn't be able to uh, honor their warranty. And I said, well, we don't care about that because we have our own warranty. We're going to take care of that. And when I said that, they hung up on me. <laughs> so, that's the kind of good American business that you get. Oh, I wow. Guess. Awesome. <laughs> but anyway, enough of my sob story. Uh, tonight we have uh, Nick Redford. We're going to talk about a book that he wrote a couple years ago called Final Events. It is uh, the secret government group on demonic UFOs and the afterlife. And this is a book that uh, I read... About two years ago, I actually heard Nick on Future Quake talking about it. Uh, Nick is normally a uh, just talks about UFOs, cryptozoology. He's kind of a jack of all trades in the paranormal world. And the guy's written like 25-something books. So we're going to go to him, and uh, we'll come back on the other side on uh, Conspiracy Normal. All right, we're back on Conspiracy Normal. It's your host, Adam Sane. Co-host, still the same guy. Yep, Luke Reed. All right, now on the line we have Nick Redfern, and uh, he uh, wrote a book, one of his many books, uh, a couple, a few years ago called Final Events, and I uh, just wanted to bring Nick on to talk about that. Uh, should be a very interesting interview. There's a lot of ground to cover in it because it is uh, an extremely compelling book. Nick, we want to rec- uh, welcome you to uh, Conspiracy Normal. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Uh, sure. Nick, uh, for our maybe our audience that uh, is uh, not familiar with you, but I think in the paranormal field, probably that uh, not too many people are not familiar with you. Um, could you just uh, kind of go over who you are, and we'll just kind of uh, take yeah. it as it comes? Yeah, sure. Um, well, originally from England, um, lived just outside Dallas in Texas. Um, I work as a um, a writer, sort of journalist, author lecturer things like that and um my my background um when i first left school i didn't really know what i wanted to do i wasn't i wasn't the best student um just just about to scrape through high school and that was about it um but i got a, a job offer uh, working on a rock music magazine back in england called zero uh which isn't around anymore and i did that for a couple of years and um it got me interested in the world of journalism and writing and um I actually had an interest in paranormal stuff because my dad was in the British Royal Air Force and worked on radar. And, excuse me, he was involved in a couple of UFO incidents um, where these fast-moving, high-flying targets were tracked on the radar scopes. Nobody knew what they were, and everybody was told not to talk about it. And my dad didn't until I was, like, 13 or 14, and that's what got me interested in that. And so what I did was to sort of combine the interest in UFOs and things like that with the couple of years I'd done working on the magazine and, and thought, well, you know, why not try and combine the two and 
sort of apply investigative journalistic techniques but to phenomena like UFOs and Bigfoot or whatever. So that's basically what I've, you know, what I've done since then is to sort of, um, you know, dig into the areas like that that interest me and, and write about the experiences and the files or the, that I've uncovered or the witnesses I've interviewed, that kind of thing. Yeah, you are quite prolific. I've seen some internet memes out there uh, that says that you write a book like, as you read this, Nick Redfern has written a book. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, somebody else made a joke that I've got like six uh. clones or something all sitting around, you know, typing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I crack the whip, you know, kind of thing. But um, now, I mean, basically, I, I sort of, I mean, some writers, you know, they like to sort of burn the midnight oil. I mean, I like to stay up late, you know. I don't want yeah. to turn in much before about one. But I like to keep regular hours. So what I like working hours, so I like to work Monday to Friday, 8 to 5. And when you're doing that sort of, you know, 8 hours a day, 5 days a week, you, you can sort of crank out a lot of work, you know. It's um, and it's it's not... When, when you think of like a 70, 80,000 word book, if you've got all the data and the information and the interviews done, you know, if you can do eight hours a day every day or five days a week for like four months, you know, you can you can get a book written quite easily in that time, really. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's pretty much like that's your full-time, it's a full-time gig for you. You don't have any other kind of well, uh, like job that, well, that you have to worry about? Well, well, not so much other jobs, but I mean, I, I don't earn a living from writing books. I mean, okay. you know, people think if you write books, you know, you're driving around in a Ferrari or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not quite like that at all. But uh, I work full-time as a writer, but I mean, a lot of what I do is, you know, I don't do anything uh, paranormal at all. I mean, the most recent, I mean, just to give you an example, nothing to do with the paranormal. One article I was commissioned to do the other day was um, an article on whether it's... Um, safe and okay to lay asphalt when it's raining <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I do a lot of stuff for companies that sort of um, research stuff and how to guides for yeah. people you know to, to uh, do everything from how to you know trim the hair on a on a Labrador or whatever you know or to lay an asphalt you know right. so, uh, it isn't all sort of uh, you know excitement and X-Files stuff by any means but I work full time as a writer but like most writers all know you know you just, it's a uh, it's a job that I love doing, but, you know, you're never going to sort of retire at uh, 35 and, you know, be sitting by the pool with a Lamborghini in the drive. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> I, a, I'm not bothered about that. I want a job I enjoy, you know. Yeah, it's a passion. Yeah, exactly. Um, I wanted to get into about uh, Final Events, and uh, this is a book that, um, you know, I myself was aware of the works of guys like... Uh, well, Guy Malone, um, Elia Marzulli, Joe Jordan. Uh, I was actually aware of those guys before I read your book. And, uh, you know, I kind of had felt like Joe Jordan was maybe the, kind of the first in the 90s to make a link between the demonic and uh, alien abductions. But that really, as your book proves, turns out not to be true because you talk about uh, an organization called the Collins Elite. And which is a very strange name. I'm sure we'll get into the, the etymology of that. But um, <clears throat> it's something that starts with a guy named Ray Boucher in the early 90s. Um, yeah. And well, basically, um, you know, sometimes when you're doing investigation, you, you stumble across a story and you find it yourself, you know. 
Other yeah. time, witnesses will come to you and say, hey, I wanted to share this with you, and then when they give the information, a few names, that leads to other things. Well, the story behind final events was sort of a, com a completely different thing. Um, over the years, I've had sort of periodic, occasional contact with a man named uh, Ray Boucher, and Ray's a former... Uh, state director for MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, and he was back in the 80s, the state director uh, for Nebraska, where he lives. And um, <clears throat> Ray is also um, a priest, uh, an Anglican priest. And so his background, the more he looked into the UFO subject, Ray came to sort of draw parallels between UFO activity and certain sort of paranormal or you know, supernatural or demonic activity even. And, you know, came to view the... Right, came to view the whole alien abduction, or even the alien presence, if you like, as being like a, a deception to mask the the idea that these entities are, are literally demonic, you know, literally sort of heaven and hell demonic, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, and... Ray um, wrote about this. He did a number of papers in the early 1990s and late 80s that talked about some of, some of the parallels between the experiences that people would have in the UFO field and also the paranormal field and things like negative backlash and ill health and these entities kind of acting like a predatory fashion. And when, on one occasion when I was speaking to Ray, he related this story to me about how in 1991... He was approached by two um, physicists working on a classified Department of Defense program. And uh, it was basically the, the two guys approached Ray because they wanted the opinion and perspective of someone who, number one, was heavily involved in the UFO field, but number two, also had a background and a deep knowledge of, uh, of Christianity. And they... So Ray said, well, sure, you know, he was intrigued by the fact that not somebody just wanted to speak to him, but it was two physicists from the Pentagon. So a meeting was arranged at a, a hotel in Lincoln, Nebraska, um, which was sort of the, uh, in Ray's area, and the two guys agreed to fly out, and, you know, they had lunch together and chatted and had another meeting and various phone calls. And it basically came down to this scenario of, of this small think tank-type group in the government or it's perceived as being small. I was never really able to get sort of a, a fully clear picture on the size, but a think right. tank type group in the government that was looking at this idea that UFOs had sort of demonic origins and intents, and reportedly you know, it received funding through official channels, etc. And <clears throat> excuse me. And Ray was told that the, the the group itself they never called. You know these entities or whatever you want to call them as demons or aliens they call them nhes which stood for non-human entities so you know i listened to what ray had to say and he told me how that the scientists came to initially believe they were dealing with extraterrestrials but then it was like the project got had this black cloud hanging over it with it just seemed everything seemed negative ill health and psychological issues and bad luck a whole range of different things hit the project as if the people had been cursed almost and there were even deaths involved in different things, and um, eventually they came to believe that they were dealing with creatures that were masquerading as aliens to try and get their grips into the human race and, and deceive us on a large scale, and they wanted Ray's opinion, so you know, he gave it, which was sort of in line and in accord, and um, he related this to me, and then that sort of pushed me down the path then of, 
of looking for more evidence and information sort of relative to this group. Um, and the Collins elite, what is the, what is the meaning of that name? Kind of has an interesting... Yeah, it's actually a, a weird um, origin. I mean, I, I have to be the first to admit, the Collins elite, as it was related to me, the group members said that was its nickname, and that's how they always referred to it, of the seven or eight people from the group I spoke to. And that leads me to believe that it wasn't just a nickname that was uh, applied to the group, but it was specifically used because I, I have no proof of this, but I suspect that the real name is classified. And so it acts as like yeah. a convenient cover that if somebody uses the Freedom of Information Act for information on the Collins Elite, you're not going to find it. It's like with the CIA. Their nickname is the company. You know, but there's no, um, you know, there's no agency of government called the company, but there is one called the CIA. You know, right. you see what I mean? I think it's like right. that. But the name basically came from the town of a little town called Collins, in New York, um, where the, the there just wasn't much going on, basically. Um, and one of the people the the group apparently had on board was a Quaker um, who had a lot of knowledge of um, sort of demonic history and things like that going back centuries. And they brought him on board as like a consultant. And because everybody else in town was sort of all involved in one little industry, I think it was making butter or something like that, um, but it, they could jokingly called him the elite of Collins because, you know, he had this sort of consultancy job he was doing with the Pentagon and everybody else had this sort of relatively, you know, sort of day-to-day -day activity. And so they jokingly then called themselves the Collins elite. But it had no bearing on, I should say, it had no bearing on the work they were doing. I, I think it was like a, a joke, but then they realized it was something that could be, where the group could be talked about if they needed to, but without compromising you know what its real name was, and and you actually spoke to two of these um, two of the men that were involved. Um, well, how did yeah. they get in touch with you? Well, this um, there, there's a couple of things I mentioned in the book where Ray gave me a few names, dates, and places which he preferred okay. that I didn't publish. Yeah. And so you know, I, I stand. If people don't want me to publish things, their names or whatever, or even, even dates, I don't. You know, but he said. For what it's worth, you know, here's a few snippets of information that might help put you on the track of at least of who some of these people are. And basically, you know, a lot of researchers, they wonder, well, what should I do when I get something like this? And if you hit the brick wall, what I've found is you take an alternative approach and you just lay your cards on the table and you phone or you contact the press office or the PR office at this age or that age and say, hey, you know, I'm looking into this. Is it a valid story or is it just a hoax? You know, because if you really hit that brick wall, what have you got to lose? And what I found is that sometimes if you go knocking and people want to know why you're knocking, they'll come to you to find out. And and I, and I suspect that the reason why at least a couple of the people spoke to me was because I think there's like an effort, at least on one's part, to get the story into the public domain in a way where, at first at least, it can be gauged as to what the reaction is and then release a bit more and release a bit more. And I, I suspect that might have been part of the case with Ray, that it wasn't just a case of wanting his opinion. It was to subtly seed the outline of the story to him, to see what he did with it and who he told and what their reaction was and what other people's reaction was. And, and that's what Ray did. He wrote about it, but very low-key. Yeah. So, you know, it didn't have that much of a response. But basically, it was through these leads that 
that Ray provided, but which we didn't include in the book, that led me to a few people who was basically, you know, well, why are you looking into this? Why do you want to know? And I, I just literally laid my cards on the table. I, I told them the same story as I just told you about Ray. And, because, and the reason I did that was because Ray's story is public domain. As I said, he published it back around 94, 95. Um, and so then it was a case of, well, why are you interested? What are you going to do with information? And I was like, well, you know, it depends what the information is. If it's interesting enough, you know, I'd like to write something extensive about it and, and share it with people to see what they think of it. And, and that's really what it was. It wasn't a case of, you know, sort of deep throat type people coming to me, although they did act in a sort of a clandestine fashion. It was more, I think, that, you know, there's this sort of, even within the official world, I think like a subtle battle going on as to what we should know and what we shouldn't. And I think it was a case of some people wanting the story out there. The, the Collins elite, um, they really get started, I think, in the early 50s. And that's um, in response to a guy named Jack Parsons. Yeah, well, Jack Parsons was a very interesting and entertaining character. Um, yeah, I think Luke would really like him. It sounds like <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah, he was, a, he was like a cool guy, you know. He was sort of... Um, Okay, he was like, almost like a punk rocker of his day, you know what I mean? Yeah. He was totally anti-everything and just following his own path. But he was a, he was a brilliant rocket scientist. Um, he was born in uh, 1913, excuse me, 1914. And by the uh, sort of early 1930s, he was heavily involved in early rocket research. And he was actually the founder of NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, which um, is in Pasadena, California. And um, by the 1930s, you know, the military was realizing that, you know, they weren't so, certainly at that stage looking at going to the moon or whatever, but they did realize that rockets represented the sort of next stage of technology to be used in warfare. So he was given uh, funding and a grant, etc. And by the time of the Second World War, Parsons actually had a top secret clearance with the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, and he was heavily involved in doing rocket research, you know, from the perspective of launching what one day would become, you know, sort of modern-day missiles and things like that. And um, he, he did his work, you know, and that was his, sort of his day job, so to speak. But um, his other job, um, he was a big um, follower and devotee of Alistair Crowley, uh, the famous occultist. And um, Crowley was, excuse me, Parsons was actually offered by Crowley the, the job of running the... Um, the office, if you like, in, in Pasadena, California, in Los Angeles. Um, and so he was very much, you know, driven by research into the occult, and he was heavily interested in trying to summon up occult entities and things like that. And the, the military basically turned a blind eye. Uh, files that have surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act today show that they were clearly aware of his relationship with Crowley and uh, everything was going, you know, that was going on. I mean, some of the files are really funny. Uh, some of the official files talk about um, agents actually spying on um, Parsons' house and seeing, I'm quoting literally now, and in the files, it, it talks about groups of women of loose morals entering the house yeah. on a regular basis and things like that. So, um, you know, they're watching it very closely, but they realise he was a you know, very good rocket scientist, and regardless of what he did in his free time, he was still a good rocket scientist. Now, in 1950... He was arrested and lost his um, 
clearance because he took some papers home from where he was working at the time, which was Howard Hughes' aircraft company. And the, the story was that he was applying for a job in Israel, working for an aviation company, and so he wanted to take some notes home to refer to them, to basically, um, which he could include information in his resume. But there was concern, you know, which is understandable concern, that he actually took the files to sell to Israel, that he was working as an undercover spy, so to speak. Right. That was never proved, but he did lose his security clearance. Now, Parsons also had a heavy and deep interest in UFOs and actually claimed that he opened a portal or a doorway in 47 using all these magical rituals that let through these occult UFOs that today people view as alien spaceships. And a lot of the people who were involved in the early investigation of Parsons from the military and the intelligence community, because they were having to watch every aspect of his life, they picked up on the fact that he was saying, you know, he was responsible for UFOs, that they weren't extraterrestrial, that there was something occult, and he'd opened this gateway. So you had a bunch of different people from different agencies, all exposed to Parsons' work, all aware of all the different facets, whether it was his rocket stuff, his things with Crowley, his UFO angle, and they began to think, well, you know, this guy seems to be, you know, in on everything. And a couple of the people were actually also working on a lot of the early um, military programs looking at UFOs in 47 and 48. So they got interested. And then it was a case of a bunch of these guys getting together after work and having sort of roundtable meetings all about this. And then when somebody in the Pentagon heard about it, and this is when the Air Force was, you know, still struggling to understand what UFOs were, it was basically saying a case of saying, well, you know, we've got this Project Blue Book that's looking at this angle, the CIA's Robertson panel is looking at this angle, why don't you guys look at this occult angle that Parsons, this guy who you've been investigating for the last 12 months, why don't you follow on that? So that's what happened, and funding was created, and so you had this, the birth of this group in a roundabout fashion, all because of the, the thing going on with Parsons in sort of 49 and 50. And, and the ritual that he was doing was called uh, the Babylon working. Yeah. I think it's B-A-B-A-L-O-N. And uh, it's very interesting, too, because it's 47. I mean, that's the, that's the big yeah. date. You know, that's the Kenneth Arnold sighting. Yeah. That's the uh, Roswell crash. I know you have your own theories on the Roswell crash, but you kind of posit well, a different theory in yeah. your book about... Parsons possibly creating some kind of humunculus? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing is, um, when we look at Parsons in, in the year 1947 with Kenneth Arnold, we can actually make a linkage between Parsons and Arnold. It's a bit of a complicated one, yeah. but Jack Parsons, for a while at least, was friends with L. Ron Hubbard, who founded Scientology. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, Hubbard was also, in the 40s, a prolific science fiction writer. And um, so you had a link between Parsons and Hubbard. Hubbard was also a colleague and friend of Ray Palmer, who was the editor of the sci-fi magazine Astounding Stories. And Ray Palmer was the co-author with Kenneth Arnold of Arnold's book, The Coming of the Flying Saucers. So you had Kenneth Arnold linked with Ray Palmer. You had Ray Palmer linked with Hubbard. And then you had Hubbard linked with Parsons. So you had a direct line between the four of them. So that makes it all the more intriguing as well. But, um, yeah, but Parsons was heavily involved in, like Crowley, not just understanding magic, but trying to invoke 
paranormal entities. Um, that, w that was basically the thrust of a, a lot of their work. And Crowley himself in 1918 conjured up this creature called Lamb, L-A-M. And if you see pictures of Lamb on the internet, I reproduced one in final events. It looks, it looks eerily like the, the being on the front of Whitley Strieber's book, Communion. Uh, you know, it's like this large, bald head and these penetrating eyes and little shoulders. It looks, it looks aside from the fact that the eyes aren't pitch black, but it looks just like a, an alien grey. Um, but in 47, um, when um, Parsons was involved in this whole Babylon working, the idea was to sort of invoke these supernatural entities via these gateways, and he claimed that that's where he let this thing in. But he also claimed, in a roundabout way... Um, or I should say, sorry, I'm getting this wrong. The, the Collins elite, um, and I should stress, I've never been able to prove fully that the Collins elite and the group that Ray met their members of, it's exactly the same one, or if there might have been like a, an outgrowth or two groups following different paths. There are indications, sure. some of the stuff in the book, that there were at least two groups, maybe even three, following this occult path. And yeah. certainly one of them, Ray told me that the whole thing they were t they told him was that it all went back to um, Jack Parsons. So we know that um, they're all in accord on that angle. But the the Collins elite, at least, they talk about how Parsons um, was trying to create like a, what's called a homunculus, which is like a magical little figure uh, that you sort of breathe life into. Uh, and we know that was go that he was supposed to be doing that in 1952 when he blew himself <laughs> up in his lab um, <laughs> and, uh, and killed himself, unfortunately. Um, but uh, but the, the story that they had regarding Roswell is that Roswell, they came to believe, was like some sort of Trojan horse where there never was an actual crash or even an accident, that it was like a cunning Trojan horse-type deception where these demonic entities had literally sort of like weaved a, like a technological alchemy. You know, alchemy is a change of base metals into precious metals, you know, like from tin into gold or whatever. Well, they came to believe, you know, that these entities could sort of weave atoms in the universe to create the sort of the memory foil, you know, the debris that was reportedly found at Roswell, and also to create homunculus-style jackalopes almost, you know, like manufactured <laughs> bodies that had never really lived, and they could do it by, you know, manipulating matter and atoms to create what was in all essence a life form but that wasn't real, and then sort of strategically place all this stuff in the desert as a means to have the military believe that they'd just been visited by extraterrestrials and more importantly these were vulnerable extraterrestrials who could die and crash etc when in other words they were trying to sort of set the scene when the, the reality was the exact opposite from the college elite's perspective that are actually almost like indestructible entities that couldn't be killed because they lacked physical force so they had to sort of manipulate matter to create something that would do their job for them, if you like. Which is probably the wildest, you know, scenario for Roswell ever presented, I think. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, what, what were you saying about uh, the the foil? You said something about memory foil or being well, at yeah, the crash I mean, site? At the, so. Yeah, at the crash site. This is one of the interesting things, you know, when people say, what came down at Roswell? Many of the military guys who were there, and even the families of some of the locals who and handled the wreckage before the military got on site, talked about finding this huge field of this metallic debris that was described as looking and feeling like foil, but when you would squash it up, it would immediately return 
to its original form, like it, you, like it had like an inherited memory or something like that. And oh, okay. um, so that was basically what the material was described as being, and the and these people came to conclude that again it was like a, a form of alchemy, like sort of transmutating some sort of like the atomic structure or whatever, and then you know creating it to appear to be some technologically advanced material, oh, okay. but it was just okay. sort of weaved. You know, sort of like an alchemic fashion or something. I see. Um, and about the the Collins elite, one of the things that they that they looked into a lot was uh, kind of the link between UFOs, alien abductions, out of body experiences. Uh, yeah. uh, what what was the conclusion that they came to about the nature of all those phenomena? Yeah. Well, this this is an interesting angle because. One of the things I found doing the research um, was that strands of this whole... Over time, I should preface this by saying that some of their views changed and were modified over time. Right. You know, they, although they held to the Christian perspective, they weren't above sort of modifying it when they felt the information was to their... suited their needs. Um, and we see evidence as time goes on that... I mean, certainly in the 50s and 60s, I didn't see any evidence that they were involved in looking at out-of-body experience links to the UFO phenomenon or abductions. But by the 70s, they were. I mean, there's one classic case um, involving a, a helicopter pilot. It's actually 40 years ago in October of this year, Captain Coyne, a military pilot who was flying a helicopter in Ohio, um, coming into land, and the, him and the crew, they saw this bright green sort of disc-shaped UFO that literally sort of loomed right in front of them. And in the days and weeks afterwards, Captain Coyne and several of the crew members were, were telephoned by somebody from the Pentagon and asked questions about, have you had any out-of-body experiences? And they, they went on record, but of course, nobody realized the significance back then that this may probably was the people from the Collins elite or a similar organization asking these questions. But nevertheless, sure. they went on record as saying, you know, we got these calls and not sure they were, but they wanted to know, you know. And the one guy said, yeah, he felt, he dreamt just after the experience that he was dead and looking over his body. Mm. Um, now, the Collins elite came to believe that the human soul is like a, an energy force. And they came to the conclusion, a highly controversial conclusion, and I always preface this by saying that, you know, as far as I know, and as, as the Collins elite also admitted, it was a belief system. It wasn't anything they could prove. It was yeah. just a belief. But they came to believe that the human soul is like a is, a, is built on energy, and it's possible to siphon that energy and essentially for entities that are energy based, they can, in simple terms, feed on the soul energy. So they viewed the whole purpose of these entities was to sort of recycle souls in what they came to term soul factories. The best way I can describe it, if you think of the original Matrix movie, you know, where Keanu Reeves wakes up and realizes the real world's just a dream, and, and the real world is, you know, all these endless pods where we're all farmed for electrical energy by all these machines. Well, they came to view the afterlife as not being sort of pitchforks and like a fiery furnace, but some other form of dimension where souls were sort of lined up in their billions and siphoned off of the energy for these entities. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a wild, bizarre and unsettling scenario. You know, the idea is that the Earth is like, a, is like the farm. 
you know, where the cattle grazing in the field, mm-hmm. and when the when the cattle go to the slaughterhouse, we go to the or we all go to the factory where all this energy is siphoned off bit by bit. Yeah, they're coming to eat our souls, basically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, come to I, again, I always preface by saying, you know, this isn't the book isn't meant to be intended. Nick Redfern pounding on the table saying, you know, you've got to run to the hills, this is what's going on. Yeah. The book is a study of how and why this group came to those conclusions because I found it a fascinating story. It's not me, you know, demanding that we all run for cover or whatever, you know what I mean? Right, right. But they had some interesting ideas, though, too, that they they um, they had seen things that they believed to be demonic manifestations. And they had some ideas to prevent that from taking place. Uh, what was what were some of their ideas that they had? What demonic manifestations you mean? Yeah, like they were going to try to do um, like a Project Blue Beam kind of thing, where they were going. Oh, I think, sorry, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there was, there was some weird, weird stuff. I mean, again, a lot of it was sort of round table stuff. They admitted to it. We were just you know talking and ideas and. Um, they, they came to believe that that it was possible to keep these entities at bay by by denying belief of their existence. That's to say, it was a very weird thing. It was almost like they were saying that if you don't believe in these things, their power to affect us is lessened. Um, you know, kind of like, I guess, if you hold a, in you know, the movies, you hold up a cross at a vampire, and if you yeah. don't really have faith, the cross doesn't work, you know, kind of that sort of thing. Um and they came to believe that the if if there was enough belief, we could hold these beings at bay forever. But they believed, or they concluded, there wasn't enough belief. And one of the ideas they claimed to have looked at um, was the idea of like faking a religious event in the skies, you know, like a second coming, and to the point where everybody became believers, and then that would create such a show of strength that these entities wouldn't be able to break through it so it was a case of creating a ruse and a lie but as they saw it for the for the in the long term the you know for the good of everyone even if it meant deceiving them in the process um now as they, the people stressed to him you know if you look on the internet you and you look at project bluebeam there's all this stuff about you know the satellites up there and they're ready to do it and whatever yeah. You know, like a charade, religious charade. The people I spoke with at least said it wasn't like that at all. It was like a round table meeting to determine if it was even feasible, if the technology even existed. And, you know, they they kind of thought about it and it was viewed as a bit off the wall. But, you know, who knows what's going on behind the scenes, certainly in things like sophisticated hologram research, that kind of thing, you know. I know there was an idea, too, that they had, was that they wanted to kind of increase the... Um, the extent of kind of Christian beliefs in the in the U.S. military, and that was something else that they had thought yeah, of doing. Yeah, yeah, you know, the idea of, of really sort of instilling it here, there, and everywhere. And you know, some yeah. people, I mean, they didn't view themselves as bad guys. They felt they were you know, okay. They were doing underhanded things and behind the scenes and manipulating people. But they felt, you know, for, it was for the better good of the people in the end. But the idea was to sort of, you know, reinforce. Um, you know the Christian doctrines and beliefs, whether people wanted it or not, because if they don't, it was if they didn't, it would be a worse situation for them anyway. So they they viewed that what they were doing was right, I guess. Nick, do you think that they've succeeded in some of that stuff? 
Well, you know, I, it's difficult. It's difficult to know because I mean, we're talking about a think tank in the government that had. Yeah. We know it had a lot of it, um, support and um, and funding, and certainly people like Ronald Reagan. You know, Ronald Reagan was heavily interested in UFOs, but he was also deeply interested in you know end time scenarios and the apocalypse and Armageddon. You know, he possessed right. a number of books on that sort of stuff. Um, you know, and um, uh, so from that perspective, it's not surprising that there are people in government who I think shared their views because I was, I'm certain, although I can't prove it, that there was obviously some, you know, c connection between probably the Reagan administration and the Collins elite, and the, some of the people allude to that in the book. Um, so, but to what extent, you know, they actually have an influence on um, sort of official policy, I mean, that's, I, I think that's dependent upon, you know, who's in power and who wields the power at any given time. Um, and it, it's difficult to really know, you know, I think the important thing to remember is that, you know, over the years there have been a lot of think tanks and groups and different projects within government and the military that have addressed the UFO issue from a lot of different angles. So even in government there's not like a consensus that it's this or that. Um, and I think that's probably the same with the Collins elite and, um, you know, like when Bray met these people that it was a project, it was a group one of many and some people supported it and others might have supported the extraterrestrial angle so sure. it, it really is just difficult you know in, in other words to sort of know how much power they wield and to what extent or is it just you know are they talking to themselves you know what I mean yeah uh, one of the most interesting parts of the book uh, and I was actually rereading this part of this section today was uh, kind of the link that uh, you draw in it, but the, like the mythological creatures of Babylon, of Greece, Rome, and yeah. uh, kind of how that fits in with like the modern day alien abduction lore, and like well, also yeah, kind of the the significance of the owl is very interesting too. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's actually one of the the major things that they were looking into. I mean, the one of the things I found was that as well as sort of looking at modern-day UFO reports and cases and studying them, they had a bunch of people, again, I'm not sure how many, but they certainly had people in their employ whose entire job was to sort of pour over um, ancient manuscripts, you know, sort of dusty old volumes going back to the 1500s on, you know, raising the dead or <laughs> raising demons or whatever, you know, sort of volumes that probably worth, I don't know, probably 100,000 grand or whatever, but barely get let out of libraries or that kind of thing. Um, and one of the things they found was a lot of interesting parallels between things like today's abduction stories and abductions and encounters with paranormal entities thousands of years ago that displayed a lot of similarities. And um, certainly in um, ancient Babylonia, um, they had um, reports where these sort of evil entities would break into people's homes at night and they would steal babies um, um, you know, that you'd also have sort of the stories of the incubi and the succubi, sort of male and female um, paranormal supernatural creatures that would have sex in the middle of the night with humans. You know, so you've got like the genetic and the reproductive angle. Um, and sometimes they would steal babies and leave what was called a changeling, which was looked like a human baby but wasn't. So you've almost got like the hybrid baby angle also that yeah. you have with abductions. And 
from there they started digging into like Middle Ages Europe and things like fairy encounters. You know, fairy encounters, people think of fairies today. You think of like, you know, Tinkerbell and a little female character with wings. <laughs> that, that imagery is actually only a production of like the last 150 years. Before that, they were sort of seen as like shadowy, sinister, malevolent little creatures that could be both friendly and hostile, depending on how you dealt with them. Um, and you can find stories going back hundreds of years where the, the fairy encounter, you know, might begin with somebody walking in the woods late at night and they'd see these fairy lights, you know, which you could class as the, the UFO. Then you would see these little beings come out of the fairy lights, which were fairies or were they aliens? Then, you know, the person gets taken to the fairy queen kingdom. They may meet the fairy queen and if it's a man, you know, he's made to mate with the fairy queen to create these magical offsprings between fairy creatures and humans which can traverse both worlds um, and the person then you know gets taken back to the woods and they think an hour has gone by when two days has gone by and there are countless reports like that so you've got the missing time angle as well um, and they came to believe that from ancient Babylon through Middle Eastern excuse me um, Middle Ages Europe through abductions it was the exact same phenomena but presenting itself in in a way that was more relevant to the people of the era. So, you know, they would instill the idea 3,000 years ago. They, would, they were paranormal. 500 years ago, you know, they portrayed themselves as fairies. Today, it's extraterrestrials. And what's interesting, if you look, even over the last 60 years, we see a massive change in the phenomenon. You know, back in the 40s, it was all flying saucers. Nobody really sees flying saucers now. Literal flying yeah. saucers, the tripod landing marks and things like that. Right, right. It's like black triangles. Back in the 50s, the aliens were sort of uh, like the long-haired space brother type in the contactee stories. In the 60s, yeah, they were shorter and smaller, but the greys didn't really pop up until the sort of mid-70s onwards. Um, back in the 50s and 60s, you always had reports of aliens landing and taking soil samples and running back to the ship. So it's almost as if the phenomenon space has changed. Yeah. yeah, it's changed for us, you know, right. from the 40s to now, never mind, you know, across the centuries. It's like it's changing as our beliefs change. You know, they used to say they were from Venus or Mars. Now it's from some far away star system because we know they're probably not from Venus. Yeah, we, we, we said the Voyager out and, you know, now they say, well, we're from Zeta Reticuli or we're from some exactly. other... Are serious, you know, we're the Ashtar Command or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> uh, the owl is also interesting. That kind of, um, the, like, the screen memory aspect of it is yeah, interesting I mean, too. Yeah, well, in a lot of abduction stories today, you get reports of people who say, you know, they're driving home late at night, they got home late, realized they'd missed two hours or whatever, couldn't understand what had happened. And say for the next three nights they dreamed they were driving along the car and they saw like a five foot tall or four foot tall owl staring at them from the side of the road which <clears throat> you know it's not every day you see a five foot owl staring at you and yeah. um, so <clears throat> excuse me and so um, basically if this just happened once you know you could just say well it's just a weird dream that happened after you had a missing time or whatever but we have a lot of stories on record where people have had these experiences where they've had missing time, their dreams have been taken on board something, fragments of memories, but it all seems to be dominated by imagery of owls. And it's been suggested that the owl imagery is inserted by these alien entities 
as a cover to mask the fact that they've had a UFO encounter. You know, if you remember it, it was just, it was just an owl with penetrating eyes staring at you from the trees or whatever. And so yeah. that in itself is interesting. But when we go back again to ancient Babylonia, we find that back then owls were seen as like supernatural creatures that were linked with the realm of the dead and some of these paranormal creatures would, would manifest in the form of like a monstrous type of owl. So, you know, we have ties like this going through the entire phenomenon again, you know, is it just a screen memory designed to further bolster the idea that it's it's something it is, but it actually really isn't. And it's, and it's interesting, too, that owls turn up in the occult. Um, yeah. uh, you know, like, I mean, you have, you know, the, the goddess Athena in Greek mythology with the owl, yeah. the symbol of wisdom. But it also turns up in, like, the Bohemian, that's the symbol of the Bohemian yeah. Grove. Yeah. Several, you know, secret societies have the owl as a symbol. So it's interesting that there's that kind of, you know, the... There's an interesting connection there somewhere, I think. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, there's one that a lot of people won't know about, but I'm sure most of your listeners will have heard of the famous Mothman that John yeah. Keel made famous in the Mothman Prophecies, this sort of glowing-eyed winged creature. Well, Britain has its own version, which is seen in the woods of um, the county of Cornwall, a very ancient county in the southwest of England. And that one is, is known as Owlman because it, it's like a humanoid fi- character or figure with wings, but it has a face which is more like an owl, but also has these glowing red eyes with a typical mothman. And uh, so again, you have another owl link there as well. So uh, a lot of weird stuff like that going on. Yeah, there's a lot of strange that's going on with owls. Yeah. <laughs> Luke and I have noticed that too. <laughs> um, since you've written the book, has there in, been any contact with the Collins elite? Have you heard anything that they have been that they've done lately? That's that's an interesting thing. A lot of people ask me that, and there actually hasn't been. And, and I think this is a deliberate move, which goes back yeah. to what I said before. And even the attempts I've made have just been sort of brushed off. And I think it comes back to the fact that the when, as I said, when Ray was approached, I think this was a genuine attempt to perhaps get something out, and maybe it stalled. And I know that in 1994, Linda Howe um, had contact with raised two sources as well by letter. They, they wrote letters to her, uh, although she didn't meet them in person. And that didn't really go anywhere. And, you know, maybe just through chance when I decided to speak to Ray and he opened up about it, it was another chance, you know, let's see what happens with this information. And again, although I can't prove it, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, there wasn't a great deal of observance of the reaction that the book brought in the UFO community. And it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if they're not already speaking to somebody else who, you know, maybe take it to the next level beyond just a book, you know what I mean? Right. I, I, think, what they're, I think what they're doing is subtly trying to spread the story. It's almost like a under-the-radar meme or something like that. Um, and then, you know, take it to another level and another level. And maybe, you know, Ray was the first tier, then somebody approached Linda Howe, and that was the second. Final events was the next one. Maybe somebody else, you know, has been invited to sit in on the group. I mean, who knows? I'm, admittedly, I'm speculating. But I think no. because, you know, the door's been closed to me now, I think it's not coincidence. I think it's like a, a step-by-step procession that somebody wants to see 
well, what would happen if we released it, you know, to everybody? And the reason why I think they've done that is because, if you think about it, psychologically, the three or 4,000 people that sort of regularly attend the conferences, you know, take part in the chat room, listen to the radio shows or whatever, they're an easy audience to monitor, but they're a, they're a widespread diversity of the entire population. So you could you can actually get a good idea of the entire population's views by watching a clear small group that you can watch closely you see what i mean so i think that's yeah. what i think that's the reasoning behind it is to gauge what the everyone would think by targeting a small audience to start with nick do you yourself do you put any stock in the the, the demonic theory of ufos um, yeah well that, that's the big question i get asked a lot i mean sure um my personal view, you know, when I got into the whole UFO thing as a kid, you know, I came, I thought, it's all extraterrestrial. <coughs> Excuse me, I thought it was all extraterrestrial and, you know, nuts and bolts spacecraft and um, the government was hiding, you know, alien bodies in the refrigerator or whatever. And that maybe <laughs> yeah. they are, you know, maybe that is exactly what's going on. The college elite are just too caught up in their beliefs. But I, if people ask me, you know, I don't personally believe that we can literally interpret this as demonic. Now, one of the, you know, a lot of people, religion causes a lot of friction in the world, as we know. You know, and there are a lot of different religions, and they clearly, you know, can't all be correct. And it's not my, you know, I'm not trying to offend anybody who's a believer in this or a believer in that. But sure. when they all have different beliefs, or, or differing beliefs, at least, clearly a substantial people, number of people have got to be wrong if one of them's right. Now, the Collins elite, well, I believe what their big mistake was, was in not interpreting the phenomenon as paranormal rather than alien, but insisting it's this and nothing else, you know, uh, which is what they did. They said, it's got to be this. this is, we know this is what it is, and we're going to follow this angle because that's what it is. My view today, the more I've dug into the UFO subject, I am actually less inclined to think it's extraterrestrial, and I'm more inclined hmm. to think it's interdimensional or extra-dimensional that these things coexist with us and probably always have. I'm not yeah. sure they're cut from one galaxy or another. So that I believe they're literally alien in the sense they're not from here. But, you know, things like quantum physics today are allowing for the existence of multi-dimension. I think they're probably something like that. And it wouldn't surprise me, and again, you know, not meant to offend, but it wouldn't surprise me if if the ancients knew a lot about <clears throat> these extra dimensions and perceived them as, as like, you know, heaven or hell or whatever. Yeah. The last show we had on a guy named Alan, uh, Adam Ellenboss, who uh, had uh, experiences with ayahuasca. And uh -huh. some of his experiences are very similar to some of the things that you have, that you, you have alien abductees experience yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, you can find it, you know, in researching things like DMT, um, yeah. you know, people um, who have undergone basically trips, you know, in, uh, in sort of like a carefully controlled environment, and they've sort of seen their minds open to what they believe that entities coming through, you know, and it's, but they don't believe they're hallucinating, you know, they believe that it opens a door, so to speak. So I think we are dealing with creatures that aren't extraterrestrial, and maybe they do masquerade as... As, as extraterrestrial as a cover uh, and I think a lot of them could well be hostile to us but I don't think then that necessarily means it proves there's like a fiery pit and this guy with horns and a forked tail do you see what I mean yeah. it means that there could be 
realms where malevolent evil creatures exist and they interact with us and they manipulate us and I think that's entirely possible but I don't put the spin on it that it's you know a place where there is a literal demon or a literal devil you know right. I, I think we're dealing with something that perhaps can be explained more scientifically but over years mm. you know you have the the various beliefs relating to you know this religion or that religion constructed sure. around it you know well, Nick, I wanted to uh, change subject something a little lighter. Huh? And, uh, it couldn't get the, much darker, really. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the cover of your book has a gray alien with a demon behind it with a mushroom cloud. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it kind of looks a bit cartoonish. A lot of people don't like the cover. That, that isn't really how I envision it. Oh, I love it. it. <laughs> I wanted something a bit more sinister, you know, a bit yeah. where it was less cartoonish and more kind of H.P. Lovecraft, you know, sort of like a shadowy demon hovering over the White House or something. Yeah, like Cthulhu or something. Uh, (laughs) I wanted wanted to turn to something a little uh, little lighter, and that's something that I know that you've studied a lot, and uh, being where you are in Texas, uh, and that's the uh, the Chupacabra. Oh, yeah. What what is your kind of theory on what Hmm. that is? Well, yeah, that's my, my big interest, bigger than UFOs, is cryptozoology, which is a study right. on animals. And I've written, I've probably written about broadly the same amount of books on UFOs as I have cryptozoology. But um, the, the chupacabra is interesting because you have two variations of it. You have the original one from Puerto Rico, which sort of sprang up in the 90, early 1990s. Then you have the sort of so-called Texas chupacabra of the last six or seven years. And um, the... A lot of people assume, well, the Chupacabra's made its way from Puerto Rico, but when you look into the stories, we find that the um, the Puerto Rican version is actually quite different to the American one. I've, I've been on a number of expeditions to Puerto Rico looking for that one, and most of the witnesses describe like a bipedal creature like a chimpanzee, something about the size of a chimpanzee and speed and muscle strength, but completely hairless with these glowing red eyes, like, a, yeah. like, like spikes going down his head and neck like a like a mohawk, like a punk rock mohawk or something like that. <laughs> and, um, you know, so it looks sort of, looks pretty hostile and lethal. Um, people talk about, you know, farm animals being drained of blood and, you know, I've spoken to ranchers and veterinarians who've confirmed they've literally sort of found puncture wounds and blood drained from the bodies. Now, when these attacks sort of kicked off in the 2000s in Texas, that were um, attributed to this weird sort of hairless creature that looks like a giant hairless rat. Um, the people say, well, it's got to be the chupacabra because, you know, it's attacking animals in the same way, farm animals, etc. <laughs> but when we look into it, what we find is that, you know, the, the creatures are very different. They do look like hairless coyotes. And in some cases, you know, the DNA has been extracted from them. And they do show evidence of DNA at least, uh, coyote DNA present. However, skeptics will say that, oh, they're just, you know, coyotes with mange, but they're not. When we look at these corpses at a closer degree, what we actually find is in many of them, the front legs are actually shorter than they should be. So it gives them like this weird kangaroo-like hopping movement. There are some, or some reports, or actually quite a few reports, where people have said they've seen these creatures stand up on their hind legs and even run on their hind mm. legs, which is bizarre. You know, but some animals do that. You know, a bear can stand on its hind legs and it won't sort of run at 90 miles an hour on its hind legs. Right. It can 
you know, it can waddle along. Um, now, also with these Texas chupacabras, some of them, the, the top jaw seems to be growing longer than the bottom jaw. You know, they're supposed to be uniform and joined together, but it has like a huge overbite. Um, there are also um, examples where the, uh, the tails seem to be growing at an extra length as well. And as far as the mange is concerned, well, mange is caused by a mite, which causes localized or extensive hair loss in an animal. But one of the side effects is that the animals, you know, it just irritates them and drives them crazy, that they just scratch themselves to the point where they dig into the skin, it bleeds, and infection sets in. And so they're just covered in scabs and sores and all this sort of hairless skin. Now, these creatures, however, the Texas Chupacabra, they're not showing the evidence of the intense scratching and biting and chewing. They're also not showing evidence of patchy hair loss, which is often the case in, in mage. They're showing complete total hair loss. And there have even been reports of people seeing pups with the adults, and they're totally hairless. So it's like almost as if there's been a spontaneous mutation in the species at a genetic level in the last 10 or 15 years. And they're also displaying no fear of people, which coyotes, you know, will often run away during the day. These things stand the ground. There, also, there are a couple of reports where people have claimed these things started to circle them, almost like as a group, as if they were planning an attack. So, there are, so in other words, we have the Puerto Rican chupacabra, we have the Texas one. They're both weird. They both show evidence of not being normal animals, but I, they don't appear to be the same creature, so to speak. Do you think that they're possibly a hybrid between dog and coyote? Well, I mean... There, there, we found evidence of certainly of, of wolf and, and coyote DNA, and yeah. also in one case dog and coyote. So you know there is a bit of a mixture going on, but that that in itself shouldn't explain the hair loss. It shouldn't explain the overbite. Um, it shouldn't explain the, the um, you know the, the, the differences in the limbs, etc. Things like that. We actually got a photograph of one of these that a, a guy took in Oklahoma, a little town called Tecumseh, uh, back in 2010. And this thing is literally like bouncing on its back legs. You know, it's got mm. these little, good little front limbs, kind of like, you know, you see like a Tyrannosaurus, you know, this huge creature, you have these little hanging front limbs. It's like that, it just looks so weird. Um, so something I think is going on, and the speed of it suggests, when I said like a, a mutation in the species, it's almost like an overnight type of thing almost literally from from the kind of the side what you're saying it seems to be that there's a lot of sightings a lot of people have seen these things uh, and there's been dead bodies do you think that the like science is like biological science is um, ready to accept them well you see the problem is science does accept them but they just say well yeah it's got dna um from a coyote in it or a wolf in it and it's hairless so it's a hairless coyote mixed with a, a wild dog. And they, they, they acknowledge yeah. that. Scientists acknowledge that. But they won't take that other step. You know, they kind of ignore the overbites and the front limbs and, you know, they just say, oh, well, it's just people's perspective, how they were looking at it when they saw the creature. It wasn't really hopping, you know. And so, they're, not they're not ready to say it's a new species or something. No, or even a mutation. They're just saying it's a hairless coyote and, and mange spreads, you know, from one animal to another and etc. etc. If they live in packs and they leave it at that. So it's not a denial of existence. It's a denial of the implications of, of what's going on. 
Well, Nick, we'll have to get you back on to talk about cryptozoology. That's a that's a interesting thing that we haven't really talked about on the show very much. We we had that uh, one who who was the guest that talked uh, about cryptozoology. Micah Hanks, I think, who talked okay. a oh, yeah, Mike, about Bigfoot. Yeah, Micah's a friend of mine. Oh yeah, yeah, Mike is great. Does an awesome Alex Jones impression. What are you What are you working on now, um, Nick? I've actually got a new book out right now. It's called Monster Files. It came out last week, and it's a study of what government agencies know about weird creatures. Um, I got hold of things like um, British Royal Navy files on sightings of sea serpents um, by wow. sailors, by military sailors. Um, Air Force interesting Bigfoot reports where Bigfoot have been seen in the same vicinity and time frame as UFOs. Um, kind of things like that, you know, where, where the official world has taken in, an interest in you know, everything from Bigfoot to the Abominable Snowman, even to the Loch Ness Monster and things like that. Sure. Have you uh, have you watched this these new mermaid documentaries that have just came out? Um, well, I didn't see this one, but I saw the first one, which came out like last year, and you know it's it's entertaining, but you can tell it's like a you know it's a spoof. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I, it was hard for me to buy it. Um, all of the yeah. evidence that they had was just a hand. They they a hand a webbed hand keeps coming out and touching their the window on their submarine. And, yeah, that's right. <laughs> what? Yeah, things things like that, you know. And, that, that's the only real solid evidence that they could find. And the yeah, I, mean, I think it, it wasn't a badly ahead. made show if you kind of view it as, you know, like a bit of entertainment. But I, I understand why, I mean, a lot of people were kind of angered by it. They felt, you know, they were being lied to. Um, but, you know, I guess it depends if you view it as a fake presented as real or do you view it as like a light-hearted spoof or something, you know, it's all on right. yeah. the way you look at it, I guess, I suppose. The uh, there's there's two videos that they had that that, that showed the merman mermaids really clearly, but it, it's just it, it's too easy to fake nowadays with all of the yeah, technology it, it did look that like we have. and I mean, I mean, it was a good premise, you know. It wasn't like they were presenting them as like hot looking mermaids, like <laughs> Daryl Hannah in Splash or whatever. You know, <laughs> it wasn't like that. You know, they were look they looked more like the creature from the Black Lagoon, which was sort of like a. You know, an interesting approach. They presented them as sort of like gruesome-looking right, yeah. people, something like that. Right. Um, and what, what I did find interesting was that you know they had the um, they claimed that in the show, you know, the, the scientists all worked for the National Oceanic um, Agency of the U.S. government. Uh-huh. And right after the show was broadcast, the NOAA actually put a big thing up on their white website saying, "No, we have not got any evidence that mermaids are real." <laughs> And, um, you know, they actually felt they had to respond on their official <laughs> right. And, of course, this gave rise, well, are they protesting too much? Do they really know that mermaids really do exist? <laughs> There's a cover-up. They're covering up the mermaids. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> he does have a legitimate excuse for the cover-up, and that is is if people found out that there was an endangered species, you know, these proto-people in, in the water. Proto-fish people? Yeah, the pr- proto-fish people, yeah. <laughs> then then they would have to stop the industry from drilling yeah. for oil, you know, all over gotcha. Iceland. You know, I mean, that sounds bizarre, but what is interesting is that that's one of the reasons why some people suggested the government won't acknowledge the existence of Bigfoot, because if it's some form of primitive human and it lives in the woods an argument could be made that its entire um, 
territory, you know, should be preserved. And of course, that could sort of collapse the lumber and timber industries overnight. Right. And so yeah. one of the theories is that's one of the reasons why the government won't admit to it, because it would open the door for it being, you know, recognised as an endangered species, and what would that do, you know, to the forests that are cut down every year for trees and, I mean, for wood or whatever, you know. And one of the things I've heard about Bigfoot is that I think Lauren Coleman made this point was that um, Bigfoot probably has been shot out in the wild possibly and when the hunters get to what they shot they freak out because they think they probably just killed some hippie out in the woods and then they just don't say a word about it. (laughs) Well, yeah, there are a number of stories where people have claimed to have shot and killed a Bigfoot and yeah. thought, you know, well, I've just killed Bigfoot, you know, I'm going to be the guy who proves that there's a weird ape in the U.S. And then when they've got right up to it, they've seen its face, and it's sort of, it looks more like a primitive human than it does an animal, and then they start to worry, well, am I going to be charged with murder, you know, which, joking aside, I mean, who knows, if it was a primitive human, what what the laws would be, you know. I mean, right. I, think, I think the first time, at least, a person wouldn't be charged, but if it was proved, you know, that it was possessed human DNA, then laws would be put into place. But I think the per- first person wouldn't have anything to worry about, you know, <laughs> apart from their conscience, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's interesting things like this a lot of people don't think of, the, the legal angles of what if, you know. Mm-hmm. Nick, uh, before we go, we'll put you on the spot. Just wanted to know your favorite British punk band. Oh, that's easy, the Sex Pistols. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're a bit I've seen, I've seen on Facebook you're a big fan of yeah, I of punk I, I am too so yeah so and uh, I kind of like you know the, the classic um, earlier stuff and sort of the yeah. later heavier stuff like the Exploited and GBH and those type of bands and uh, and I like I like some of the later sort of poppier punk stuff you know it's sort of generic but it's but it's okay you know was that part the the music the the magazine you wrote for? What, what what was kind of like? Was that was it about punk rock or was it about like but other things? That was just zero. That was just across the board. You know, it okay. was um, it was just it was like a regional guy. You know, for like a what's on thing in the area. So yeah. you know, whatever bands were coming to town and stuff like that, it would you know cover all that kind of thing. Cool. Well, Nick, we want to thank you for coming on, uh, being a guest. You're a really good guest, and uh, really want to thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I appreciate you having me on, guys. Had a good time. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. So stay in the line for us, Nick, and we're just going to close All this right. section out. And uh, Luke, is anything else? We're just go we'll, for it. We'll be back on Conspiracy right. Normal. All right, we are back on Conspiracy Normal. You know me. It's your host, Adam Sane. <laughs> we, we really need um, to drop the introduction. I know, yeah, I know. Let's, like, everybody knows who we are by now. There's been, this is show 29. Just introduce ourselves one time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Just like, this is it. We're done. All right. Uh, Luke, what'd you think of Nick Reffer, man? That was a he, he's awesome great. interview. You know, and you were, you're kind of notioning to me, like, uh, you know, I ask him a question ask him yeah. a question I just felt like I didn't need to because everything he was saying I agree with you know yeah. he, he's got the same mindset about he was talking about uh, spiritual energy being collective and that energy being able to be manipulated by an occult magician to be to accomplish tasks you know e- either through evil or good mm-hmm. angels and demons uh, you know it's it's all the same stuff that that I'm into that I read sometimes and that I meditate on and everything else so yeah I partially, I guess you could call 
I could call myself an occultist. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, you, you could. I mean, there's because uh, occult just really means hidden knowledge, basically. But uh, I, I was I was kind of chuckled when he mentioned the succubus stuff because uh, you had been talking uh, <laughs> talk about how your ex girlfriend was a succubus. It, it's it, you know, lately. yeah. <laughs> Everybody kind of takes it as a lighthearted joke, and, and that's cool, you know. That's yeah. not, but but it's 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 for real. It's serious. And the way I try to... You're thinking of it more like an energy vampire kind it, of thing. Exactly. Everybody knows what what an energy vampire is. You've been in public, and you've been in a public place, and you've met somebody who's just drained you, and you didn't know why. Yeah. And it, it wasn't because that they talked too much, or they asked too many questions, or they had a lot more energy than you, or something like that. They were just genuinely tiring to be around. Sure. And... Uh, that's kind of, you know, that that is the definition of a succubus, but just in more an intimate, you know, relationship yeah. term. Or an incubus in the male in, yeah. form, right? Yeah. yeah. Su- succubus, in my case. Succubi. <laughs> Succubi. Yeah, I mean, and, and, um, and I've, I've got this kind of idea that I've been working with that, uh, you know, once, once you have sexual relations with a girl, that you're kind of cursed by them in a sense. It's serious. I'm serious. That may be true. I don't know. <laughs> and, and, and they and they will continue to take your energy over long distances and stuff because you're spending all your time dwelling and thinking about you know the last girl that you were with. Is that how you felt this this last time? Yeah, I mean no. it, it is. And I had to seriously struggle to get her out of my head. Like I was telling you, she was invading my dreams, and I don't. Yeah. I didn't. I wasn't trying to dream about her. I wasn't thinking about her before I'm going to sleep. She was she was stealing my energy from me, and it took you know a lot for me to kind of just uh, get get rid of her, <laughs> get, get rid of that. Well, now may be a good time since we're kind of on that subject. A few uh, shows ago, I can't remember exactly when that was. Uh, I'm sure I could look if I could find out. But uh, you had talked about possibly doing some. Uh, Magical rituals against somebody, right? That's uh, you know, I kind of disproved. I kind of disapproved of it, but uh, but you just you have decided against that. So, what was your reasoning? Well, um, it, what it, made it, you it decide had, against it? It had to do with my most recent girlfriend, like I was saying on that one. This is episode. the succubus. Yeah, yeah the, <laughs> and I, I figured, what better time than to try to experiment with something that. To experiment with like a dark art and see if I could actually make mm-hmm. it work, if I could execute it and see it in action before my own eyes, you know. And uh, and I am just happy with the fact that I know that I do have that kind of power now. Yeah, <laughs> I don't even have to go and execute it <laughs> because. But you felt it was dangerous. It, yeah, and uh, and it's because. You read up, or or you've heard all of these kind of old folk tales about you know old magic and how you'd have to trade something in. It's going to be a consequence for you to have this magical task done. Like you know, we want four pints of virgin's blood for going and killing this guy. You know what I'm saying? Old folklore kind of talks yeah. about evo- evocation of demons and stuff that way. And it, and uh, just like Jack Parsons, right? Right. You can do your own Babylon working. In a sense, yeah, he's probably a little more advanced than me and has read more uh, I don't on think the subject. He probably was. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> but uh, that's probably a good thing that you're not. Okay. It, well, 
Yeah, I just I just found out that it drags you down too if yeah. you want to try to accomplish a, a darker task because um, if if you that's an easy way it's kind of hard to explain if if you wanted to use darkness against someone else you in a sense yourself would have to go into a darker place yeah and uh, because if you look at it as just like we were talking a minute ago about manipulating spirit energy to accomplish a task, then you would have to reflect the 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 um, the darkness, you know, with the energy that you're going to use. So it, it just drags you down with it. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's no. You might as well just go if you got a beef with someone, just go fight them, just go beat them half to death. That's yeah. <laughs> don't don't use you know dark arts against them. It just makes no sense. What did you think about what uh, Nick was saying or some of the stuff that we were talking about, about uh, the Babylonian uh, time period, the Roman mythology, kind of like the, the alien abduction lore now, stuff about the owl, which, you know, you and I have talked about that a yeah, lot. Yeah, I, I was actually uh, gone to get a glass of water while he was talking about the owl stuff. Yeah, I think you came, you, you, you heard some I heard of that. I the tail end of yeah. it, yeah. Um, but, yeah, he's right, and I was thinking a lot about that, um throughout the ages how the the views on extra, extraterrestrials have changed you know like you say, you're saying that yeah. it, it used to be this idea that it was just some guys in space suits and you couldn't really make out their face and then it turned into the grays eventually in, in the 2000s 90s and 2000s and stuff and uh it, it just goes to show to me it's, it's just more evidence that I don't believe that extraterrestrials are just physical solid beings that are coming here in ships it's just uh i think it's actually acts of you know magical acts like whenever someone sees a ufo that could be someone actually um doing a ceremony you know to uh, attack somebody else or, or something well this whole idea of uh jack parsons doing the bible and working and basically bringing something into this world kind of like into a portal uh, 1947 I think we've mentioned this before but what's kind of it's, it's really a key year I mean you've got the first UFO sighting mm-hmm. you've got the uh, well the first you know, kind of modern day UFO sighting because there were things that happened with the Foo Fighters and stuff World War II stuff beyond that right but it kind of begins in earnest at, at that time and you have the raw, you know, what whatever it was that happened at Roswell, you have that in forty seven. Yeah. Uh Alistair Crowley dies in nineteen forty seven. Uh-huh. Uh, there's some of the things like in um Sergeant Pepper's Only Hearts Club band, you know, the same uh the, the line uh twenty years ago today Sergeant Pepper taught the band to play. Some people that think that that's a reference to Alistair Crowley because that album was in nineteen sixty seven. And 1947 was when Aleister Crowley died. And of course, Aleister Crowley is on the cover of the album. Huh. Uh, and not only not only all that, and kind of like the supernatural cult realm, 1947 is also the, and for the United States, is really kind of the, the, the Cold War begins in earnest. Uh, you know, you have the beginning of kind of the national security state with uh, the NSA being established to the national... Um, a lot was going on. A yeah. lot, a, a ton lot, yeah. was going You're on right. in 1947. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that he's bringing in a portal, you know, it seems like the time was just right for that to yeah. happen. 
especially since all, all magical workings, you know, yeah. and occultism have to do with precise times and moon phases, uh, lunar solar phases, yeah. and everything else. I'm uh, very intrigued by. Uh, I'm very very intrigued by that kind of by that kind of thing yeah. by the whole like homunculus. Yeah, and, and, and that's the, another the thing. That's another that. thing I was thinking about while he was mentioning all that. I was like, man, that that would take just a massive effort for you know to materialize well, through alchemy, alchemic, you know, whatever to make that tinfoil looking stuff that was out in the field. And the how many bodies were discovered? Did they say in Roswell? Uh, supposedly three. Yeah, three humunculi. Like you would have to have a whole group of magicians in on this and and to actually materialize something like that would would take like your mastery there's strange connections too with parsons um uh, one of the things that nick didn't mention was that parsons considered himself to be the antichrist uh crowley did too incidentally Uh, now whether that they literally thought themselves to be like kind of the christian antichrist or whether it was just kind of a figurative thing uh yeah that's probably seems to be for attention he did but yeah there's all kinds of stuff like that, but Parsons uh, did say that he was—he did say Parsons was born in 1914, and there was a uh, a preacher that uh, before that had said that you know the end of the world or, what, uh, or the beginning of the end of the world was going to start in 1914. So you have all sorts of weird, you know, another date. And yeah. 1914 is very important. That's the beginning right. of the First World War. Uh, you know that basically really kind of kicks off, in many ways, what you know the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so, where was I going with all that? Mine is you, you're just <laughs> we're just talking about you know ordered dates and specific yeah. times. And so, I, I I think you're right. Is that you know the, like like the the time seemed to have been right for them to do something or just try to pull something off. Right. Uh, also, the connection with L. Ron Hubbard is just bizarre. Uh, he mentions in the book that uh, L. Ron Hubbard stole Parsons, one of Parsons' girlfriends from him. And the girl's name actually had the last name of Northrop. Which that's people that found in Northrop Grumman. So, you know, through the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which Parsons helped to found, there's all this strange connections with the military-industrial complex. Yeah. Too. Okay. Oh, yeah. And these these kind of things just seem to come together in that one year. Yeah, it's very it's strange. There's a lot of synchronicity. Uh, it's it's wild to think about. I think it's almost time to get go Riley back on. <laughs> <laughs> he can clear all this up for us. So Luke wanted to mention a YouTube video that we watched tonight. Yeah. And what was that called, Luke? It was called uh, Paranormal Battle. Paranormal battle, <laughs> paranormal battle, uh, with Mirage and Shay. That's right. And um, yeah, these are these <laughs> these girls are going to totally revolutionize the uh, the field of of the paranormal. Yeah. So everybody needs to type in paranormal battle on YouTube and and, and give it a listen. I think it's uh, pretty watch rather. I think it's pretty obvious that they're friends of ours. Yeah, <laughs> so, so we're yeah. gonna have we're gonna have them on the show, man. Yeah, they they're, they're gonna channel Bernie Mac and Abraham Lincoln for you, us. You can hear the kind of skepticism in being Adam's voice too. I mean, it's not uh, it's no, pretty it's pretty. I don't know what you're talking about. It's pretty apparent. 
<laughs> but you know what? These are old, brother. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's the point of this show. We explore different kinds of beliefs and exa- different exa- ideas. Exactly, exactly. You know? the, these girls, uh, they they wholeheartedly believe in what they're doing, it seems like. and Apparently so. Um more, you know, at least that they at least they have an open mind and the interest to try to do do something yeah. with it. You know, well, so. I got to I got to applaud them for that. Well, unless there's anything else you want to add, uh, I think we're calling tonight. Alrighty. Uh, next week we have uh, Tim Kilkenny. He is uh, one of the co-hosts of Revelations Radio News, and we had his co-host Andrew Hoffman on back in I believe September of last year. Uh, which is a really good interview. I believe that's like episode 12, I think. I may be getting my episodes mixed up. But uh, Tim will be on. We're going to talk about just like kind of what's going on in the world, uh, talk about his, uh, you know, his experiences and his life and how he started it, uh, the Revelations Radio News, which is one of my favorite uh, podcasts. So uh, without further ado, I think we'll uh, call it a night, sir. Right on. All right. Join us next week on Conspiranormal.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.